Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. We come to the end of three months, a three-month walk through the first half of the book of Genesis. We will finish Genesis in uh, another year or so. We'll get back to it. I was telling my Bible study group this morning that uh, Lifeway, as you know, we are doing, uh, we're preaching from the same book that we're studying in Bible study, and Lifeway, I think, very wisely decided that six months in Genesis make even the best Bible scholars' eyes roll back in their heads, you know, because uh, it's a wonderful book. I hope you've learned a lot from these three months. Uh, If you've not learned anything else, you have learned that there are passages in the book of Genesis you go, why in the world is this here? And then you really begin to analyze it, and you see why it's here. It has a very important meaning. The book is not named Genesis for nothing. You know that Genesis means beginnings. And there are so many foundational doctrinal principles that are laid out in the book of Genesis for us. And today we come to, very simply put, the death of Abraham. The death of Abraham. And I pray that as we read it and understand it together, that God will speak to our hearts. By the way, let me just mention to you, because I'm fixing to lay this down, I'll forget it that we also, as we're getting into the Advent season, have this wonderful, this is our, how many years now, Miss Lisa? Three, four years we've been doing this of Advent devotions written by our church family for our church family. And they're out there on the Welcome Center. Please feel free to grab one and let's walk together through this Christmas season as we read the devotions from our brothers and sisters right here within the First Baptist family as we prepare for the coming of Christ at Christmas. Marvin O'Connell wrote a wonderful book on the life of Blaise Pascal. Uh, If you're a mathematician, that name means something to you. If you just happen to remember names, you may remember he was a famous mathematician. He also was an evangelical believer. They probably didn't call him evangelical back then, but he was a sold-out born-again believer. We get this idea sometimes that there were no true born-again believers until the great revivals of the first and second great awakening. But let me tell you, since the very beginning, there have always been people who were passionately committed to Christ, who had surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. And Blaise Pascal was one of the examples of someone who was that kind of person. While he lived his life in the scholarly world as a, as a professor, as a mathematician, he also was a tremendous man of God. And as he was talking about the death of his beloved father, O'Connell puts this quote in his book from Pascal. We who are bereaved by the death of our father will find no solid relief unless we acknowledge that what has occurred is a result not of chance, nor of some fatal necessity of nature, nor of the interplay of the elements or parts of the human condition. It is rather an event indispensable, inevitable, just, holy, and useful for the well-being of the church and for the exaltation of the name and of the glory of God. An intervention of providence decreed from all eternity to take place in the fullness of time in such a manner. What is left for us is to unite our will to that of God himself, to will in him, with him, and for him the thing that he has eternally willed in us and for us. In that quote, Pascal basically makes two statements. Number one, the understanding that the things that happen in our lives, especially when it comes to death or some of these, are decreed by God. They're not just chance events. 
It's not just bad luck. God in his providence and his wisdom designs these things for us and for his glory. And secondly, that the greatest way for us to find joy and contentment and peace in our lives is for us to align our wills with his. Because the sooner we can get our wills in line with God's will for us, the more we will find contentment in Christ. Find our satisfaction in him and in him alone. This passage that Jerry so deftly read for us this morning, in spite of all those names, tells the story of the death of Abraham, and you'll notice that it is bracketed by two sets of genealogies full of really difficult names to read. Two genealogies that are there to remind us, and I'm going to go ahead and give you the punchline at the very beginning of this sermon, remind us that God always keeps his promise. Always. And not just the big promises, even the little things. The things that may seem minor to us, God never forgets his promise. And he always keeps it. Now, it may not be in our time. It may not be in the way that we would want it to happen. Because guess what? It's not our decision. But God always keeps his promises. Back in Genesis chapter 17, if you turn back a few pages in your Bible... God made a promise to Abram. In verse 4 of chapter 17, God says these words. As for me, my covenant is with you, and you will become the father of what? Many nations. You will become the father of many nations. Now, we think of Abraham as being the father of Israel, and he was the father of the people that eventually were given the law, and then Christ came. But God didn't promise him that he would be the father of a great nation. He said, you will be the father of many nations. And so, after Sarah's death, when Abraham marries Keturah, she gives birth to six children, six sons, who then in turn have grandchildren and then great-grandchildren, every one of them becoming great nations. Because God promised Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. And so it was important that God make sure we understand that there were other great nations that were birthed. And at the end of the story, we have Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the one that you would think would have been thrown out. But no, because God promised Hagar, your son also will be a great man. He will have 12 sons, and they will be 12 nations. And God never forgets his promise. And so when you look in his word, and he promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No matter how alone you may seem, no matter how alone you may feel, God never breaks his promise. And that should give you great hope and great encouragement. And in the middle of those two genealogies, we have this life. We begin with Keturah in verses 1 through 6. 
Keturah's name literally means spices. Keturah is the word in Hebrew for spice or spices. And because her children, her sons, went to the east toward the Arabian Peninsula, which was the home of the spice colonies and the spicers, it's believed by many scholars that literally those offspring of Abraham were the ones that became the great spice merchants of the ancient world. He was married to Keturah. We're not sure exactly how long after Sarah's death. It could have been before Isaac was married or could have been after. But somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 to 38 years, Abraham and Keturah were married. And they gave birth to these children. And then the time came when they were grown and old enough to take care of themselves that Abraham lavished his love on them, gave them gifts, and sent them on their way because he knew that the primary promised covenant that God had made with him was with Isaac. Not that they were being rejected. Not that they were being sent away as if they were unloved and unwanted, but rather being sent so that they also could fulfill their destiny that God had planned for them. But it had to have been a difficult day for the old patriarch and his wife to say goodbye to those boys and their families as they moved away and went off to the east. Was there hope for them of finding faith? Absolutely. Matter of fact, it was prophesied. If you want to take a minute, turn over in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60. In Isaiah chapter 60, we see these names pop up again. Not all of them, but enough of them that we recognize that there is hope for the children of of Keturah. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 6 and 7. It says, caravans of camels. Wait, wait, let me just show you know the context. This is the chapter of Isaiah that begins, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord will, will shine upon you. For look, darkness covers the earth. Nations will come to the light, etc., etc., etc. And then in verse 6, he begins specifically, he says, God says through, through um, Isaiah, caravans of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian, and Ephah, all of them will come from Sheba. They will carry gold and frankincense and proclaim the praise of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you and go up on my altar as an acceptable sacrifice. I will glory in my beautiful house. Yes, there was hope. Kidner made the comment. He says, in God's plan, these sons of Abraham were sent away so that there might be a true home one day for them to come back to. As Isaiah prophesied. And so Keturah says goodbye to her boys. and We don't know what happens to her then when she dies, but we know about Abraham's death. Because in verse 7, it tells us this is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. Now you can do the math. This is easy math. Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees at the age of 75. So that means he spent 100 years as a wanderer, as a nomad. Now I've got to tell you, you live in tents for 100 years, you'll learn not to trust where you live. You'll learn not to put down any deep roots. One of the things that makes missionary work a lot like military work is you better never set your roots down too deep because you never know when your commander-in-chief is going to move you somewhere else. Same way with pastors, isn't it, Brother Denny? Abraham learned 
not to put his hope in temporal things, temporary things, things that would not last. Verse 8 says, He took his last breath and died at a ripe old age, old and contented, and he was gathered to his people. He was an old man full of years. The Bible teaches us that life is limited. We don't always get to have all the time that we would like but we have all the time that God knows we need. In the 139th Psalm, a great verse where he says, My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Now what does that tell me? That tells me that God knows exactly how long I need to be here. And the minute he's done, and I finish the work he asked me to do, he will take me home. Not one second longer. You know, we always used to say the old, the old thing. I'm sure you said it about somebody. I've said it of several people I know. Matter of fact, some people have said it about me. That boy is late to everything. He is going to be late to his own funeral. In fact, I got news for you. As, as cute as that saying is, you'll never be late to your funeral. It'll be right on time. It may seem like an accident to us. It may seem like a coincidence to us. It may seem like a sudden snatching away to us. But it's not with God. And so we have to learn to number our days. In the 90th Psalm, he says, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. And then all the way back in Psalm 39, let me find it real quick and read it to you. Psalm 39, verse 4, he says, Lord, reveal to me the end of my life and the number of my days. Let me know how short-lived I am. Now, listen very carefully to me, okay? We live in a world where we fight for life. Almost as an obsession. And well, we should. We should want to live as long as we can so that we can continue to have an influence for Christ. But, you know, there should be some comfort to those of us who put our trust in Christ to know that God has already determined exactly the length that we need to live. Not one second more or one second left. And that should make us feel wonderful about the fact that we don't have to worry about it. And like I said this morning as we were studying chapter 24 in Bible study time, that doesn't mean we just sit by quiescently and not do anything, but it means that when the time comes, you know, I didn't plan to say this. Let me just throw this little example in. How many of you have seen Ground, uh, Groundhog Day, the Bill Murray movie? Okay, most of you have seen Groundhog Day. So you remember the man that dies. And how many times Bill Murray keeps trying to go back and do something to keep that man alive? But, yet, but every time he goes back, what happens? The man dies because you can't fix death. You can fix everything else, or at least Bill Murray thought he could. But you can't fix death. Death is beyond us. And so that should bring us some comfort to say, I don't have to worry about it. God has already got it under control. He's got it in his hands. And that's just as true today as it was then. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that wonderful writer, Christian, said, and some of you that are probably my age and older will appreciate this more than the younger ones will. Aging is in no sense a punishment from on high, but brings its own blessings and a warmth of colors all its own. There is warmth to be drawn from the waning of your own strength. 
You can no longer get through a whole day's work. But how good it is to slip into the brief oblivion of sleep. And what a gift to wake up once more to the clarity of your second or third morning of the day. You are still of the, listen, you are still of this life, yet you are rising above the material plane. Growing old serenely is not a downhill path, but an ascent. Advancing age well lived is not a descent. It is an ascent designed by a loving, caring What a gift it is to embrace our mortality. Understand that we have an allotted time, an allotted number of days, especially for those of us who are young. You young bucks and buckets, realize the fact that you will not live forever, and that is not a bad thing. I can guarantee you, you don't want to live forever. You may think you do now, but you don't. Because there's something so much better than here waiting for you. On the other side of that door, do not be afraid. Do not fear to go into the hard places. Do not fear to go into the places where your life will be at risk. Do not fear to go to places where people will say, you're crazy to go there. You go knowing that the God who carried Eleazar from Canaan back to Abraham's homeland will carry you exactly where he wants you to go until it's time for you to go home. And then he'll say, let's go have a real party now. Do not fear senior adults. When in your sexagenarianism or septagenarianism think, you know what, I think I could be a missionary. Let me introduce you to the International Mission Board who takes 70 years old and puts them on the mission field. Do you know why? Because they believe that God is still in control of your life at 70 and 75. And if you feel called, if they can do it, they will send you. Because God is in control of this, not us. Scriptures tell us, back in Genesis, that he was buried and gathered to his people. What a great line. Gathered to his people. Not gathered to Sarah. Not gathered to the grave. Gathered to his people who were living in another plane, another dimension. He was gathered to be with them, to live with them. And now he waits for every one of us who are his spiritual offspring to join him where he is you notice in verse 11 it tells us that after abraham's death god blessed his son isaac who lived near beer lahiroi guys that were in my class this morning it wasn't part of the text do you remember us reading of the beer lahiroi story don't drop your head don't drop your head i saw it i hope you didn't look at me Those of you that were in Sunday school this morning, we only got about as far as verse 17 or 18 of chapter 24. But if you go on down further, after Rebekah decides to go back with Eleazar, does anybody remember where Isaac was when Rebekah saw him out in the field walking and meditating with the Lord? He was in Beer Lahiroi. It was in Beer Lahiroi where, in the southern part of Canaan where he was living, it was in Beer Lahiroi where he had prayed for Rebecca's barrenness that she would be able to bear children. The place where God had spoken to Isaac was the place where God blessed him. It was not the last time we would see this place. This was the place where Hagar had run from Sarah and was given the promise about Ishmael. It was here that God worked. 
This is the legacy of Abraham's life and Abraham's faith. And he died in a good old age, realizing the fact that just like God had been faithful to him, he also, sinner that he was, was faithful to God. And if you look in your Bible, you will look and you will find places throughout the New Testament where Abraham's life of faith, let me just name four of them for you to take notes on and go home this afternoon and look at them. Let me just mention four of them to you where Abraham is used as an example. The first one is the example of faith in in Romans chapter 4. Paul shows that Abraham was saved by faith. He shows that King David was saved by faith. He shows the Gentiles are saved by faith. And that under the righteousness of God, we too are saved by faith. In James chapter 2, James turns the whole story over and says that Abraham was faithful, but then he was willing to sacrifice Isaac because his deeds showed his faith. To show that he was justified, not just by his faith, but also by how that faith acted out in his life. And so in James chapter 2, he talks about this faith being worked out, wrought out with his works. In Galatians chapter 3, we hear the story about Christ being the offspring of Abraham. And in verse 8 and 9, he talks about it, it says in the Scriptures, For seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then we who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, he says in verse 26, and to your, uh, through faith, and for as many as you are baptized in Christ, have put on Christ. And finally, Hebrews chapter 11, of course, where Abraham is placed before us as the model of, of faith. We see his obedience in verse 8. We see his sojourn in verse 9. We see his hope in verse 10. We see his confidence in verse 11. We see his longing in verse 13. We see his sacrifice in verse 70. We see his reasoning in verse 19. Again and again and again, Abraham is placed before us as a model of what faithful trust in God looks like. And so this morning, I want to ask you, Where is the God of Abraham? Where is the God of Abraham? The answer is he's as close as you to your next response to his call. He is calling you to walk with him. He is calling you to go to places that he will show you that you do not know. He is calling you to trust him when the night looks dark and the way looks weary. He is calling you. Get out of your own self-reliance and learn to rely on Him. God never forgets His promises. And our responsibility is to recognize that, to remember that, and to respond in faith. And one of the ways that we remember are through the two ordinances that we're celebrating today. Every one of us that have professed faith in Christ did exactly what these five did this morning. Stepped into the waters of baptism, publicly declaring their faith in Jesus Christ. And every time we see baptism done, it reminds us of the covenant that we made with God and that God made with us. That if we would turn from our sin and turn to ourselves and turn to Christ, that He would forgive us, He would cleanse us, He would declare that the guilt and the penalty of our guilt had been paid by another. And he would then not only do that and wipe the slate clean, he also would adopt us as his children to care for us, not just for this life, 
but through all of eternity. And then we come to this table and we take a piece of bread and a little cup. It's nothing but bread and juice. Nothing magical, nothing mystical, but tremendously spiritually important. That reminds us that just like we eat food and in a way that the first century didn't even begin to understand, but Jesus did, that when you eat something, it goes into your stomach and it dissolves in those acids. And the nutrient of that food goes through the lining of your stomach, through your intestines, out into your blood system and feeds your whole body. And I don't know much about science, but I know that much. And Jesus knew that. And he said, of all of the pictures he could have given us to remember his sacrifice for us, he gave us bread and drink. So that when we accept Jesus Christ into our lives, when we surrender ourselves to him and let him take control, just like food goes in and drink goes into our bodies and nourishes us, so the Holy Spirit, which is Christ's presence with us, fills us and he begins to nourish us spiritually. And so we eat that bread and understand that it means that we're becoming one with him we drink the cup and recognize that his blood mixes with ours like a transfusion that takes place to where after a while you can no longer tell which blood was the injected and which blood was the natural it all comes together and feeds the body and keeps it healthy and strong and so today you are being called to come not just to this table, but to come to the one who is the host of this table. To come just as you are. You don't need to get yourself cleaned up first. He'll take care of cleaning up. Now, you won't stay dirty. At least you better not. If you really came to him, you won't. But you come as you are. You hear him call. You receive, you believe, and you respond by saying, I hear you calling for cleansing. And you respond by saying, I'm coming. I'm coming, Lord, to you. That's how we recognize and remember and respond. So after we pray, we're going to have a very unusual sort of response. Not weird unusual, just a little bit different. The praise team and the leadership are going to get up on the platform. And if you choose to sing with me, you can. But they're going to sing basically a call from God to come. And then we, in turn, are going to respond back by saying, singing, I hear thy welcome voice that calls me, Lord, to thee. And we're going to sing back and forth to each other. And if you need, if you're hearing Christ's call in your life today, maybe you are his child, but you've wandered away from him. Like those children of Keturah, you've gone off to the east, living your own life, and it's time for you to come back home to your real home. Today would be a great day to do that. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ. And he is calling to you today. He's calling to you saying, come to me. I can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. But you have to respond. Now, coming down here and taking my hand and having me pray with you is just the beginning of a long walk. Coming down here and kneeling at the altar and praying is just the beginning step. But it is a step. And it gets you moving in that process. And then we can begin to talk. And then we can open up God's Word. And you can hear what He's saying to you. And you can respond back to Him. Maybe you've already been down that reason. No, 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 Pastor. I'm just, I'm ready. I just needed for someone to invite me. Well, that's what I'm doing. Could just say, I give up. I surrender.
I'm coming, Lord, coming now to thee. Wash me, cleanse me in the blood that flows from Calvary. Whatever you need to do, let this be your time of responding and preparing as we come to this table. Let's bow our heads Lord, we love you and we thank you for the life of this great saint, the life of Abraham, who was a sinner. He lied, he deceived. There were times he did not trust you. Sounds a whole lot like me. And yet, he trusted you in faith and you counted that to him as righteousness. You imputed righteousness onto him in spite of his faults, in spite of his failures. You always kept your promises to him and it reminds us that you will always keep your promises to us. So Lord, wherever we are right now, not physically, we know where we are physically, wherever we are spiritually, if there are some areas of our lives that we have taken control of, that really you need to be in control of, which are all of them, by the way, may we in these moments yield those things to you. Yield those areas of our lives to your governance and your control so that we might be able, like Abraham, not to put down roots in this temporal life, but rather to set our focus on the horizon and then launch out in faith, trusting that you will take us exactly where you want us to go for exactly as long as you want us to go there. And then when our time here is done and our work is complete and you are satisfied, then you will open up that doorway, take us by the hand, and pass us from this life to the next so that we too can be gathered to our fathers. So in these few moments as we respond, may it be from the depths of our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask it. We're going to stand together and we're going to sing.